On today's episode of the John Campy Show podcast, well, it's happened. Barbie becomes the number one film of 2023 worldwide today, and in the next 48 hours, we'll cross the Harry Potter films to become the number one Warner Brothers box office film of all time. Also, Oppenheimer's continues to climb. It is now passing the Deadpool films to be the number two all-time box office R-rated film in history. Also, big questions that's floating around out there now is, is Oppenheimer even Oscar eligible due to the Oscars diversity rules? We're going to discuss that. And Oppenheimer's Oscar chances just got a hell of a lot better because Dune 2 has been moved to 2024. That and a whole bunch more. The John Campy Show podcast starts right now. Well, greetings and salutations, everybody. Welcome to the best damn movie-related show on the planet Earth, the John Campbell Show podcast. Coming to you from right here in our quaint little studio, brought to you in part by our friends at Mint Mobile. I am, of course, your host, John Campy, and it is an awesome honor and privilege, as it is every day, to have you, our international friends, gather around as we talk about our favorite things in the world, movies and movie news, TV and streaming and all sorts of good stuff, not just giving you our opinions, but giving you some information and context so you guys can form your own well-informed opinions, whether they're the same or completely different from ours. Uh, joining me in studio, we got Ray Ora, who people on the podcast have no idea what oh, he's doing. That's, sorry, a sorry. Big, hey, 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 that's a big cup. <laughs> you know what they say about big cups, right? Guys who drink from big cups. I don't, I don't want you to finish that sentence. They got a small dude. <laughs> right beside him is Jonathan Voico. Who also... Yeah, I guess uh, I'm just uh, a little flabbergasted by this conversation, but hello, everybody. And it's Monday, which means writer, director, producer, Robert Meyer Burnett's here. Robert, how you doing? I'm doing well, sir. Doing and well. And most importantly, you guys are here. Thank you so much for being here and making this show part of your day. Here's how the show's going to go. We're going to start off by talking about those topics that we just listed off. And then in the last part of the show, we're going to take questions from our YouTube channel members who've been sending in some questions for us. But for now, let's jump right into it, shall we? Well, it's finally arrived. The day is here. The day that Ray Ora suggested it was over a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> uh, the pace slowed down, but it got there. As today, Barbie will pass Super Mario Brothers as the number one film at the worldwide box office. And also within the next 24 to 48 hours, Barbie will cross Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2 to become the number one all-time Warner Brothers film. And I really want to take a second and stress that we need to really think about that. Warner Brothers, a century-old studio that is owner of one of the biggest properties, DC and everything. They've put out the Christopher Nolan Batman films. They put out the Harry Potter films. They've been around for a century. And Barbie is in the next 24, 48 hours going to cross that mark and become the all-time biggest box office film that studio has ever had, which is crazy. And also crossing Mario Brothers, again, within the next 24, 48 hours, maybe today, maybe tomorrow, but it's crossing it, it's done, to become the number one box office film of 2023. And now that Dune 2, the only film that I thought had a chance, I didn't think it would, but had a chance of catching Barbie and Mario for the number one spot box office right of the That's been moved to 2024. So it's done. Give the crown to Barbie right now. It has managed to keep going and came in at number two at the box office again. That means in six weeks, it spent four of them at number one and two of them in the number two position, barely being beat out 
It was only beat out by like $200,000 by Gran Turismo. I almost said Torino again. <laughs> Gran again, Torino. Totally different film. Get off my lawn. Totally, totally different film. Um, Rob, we've been I mean, obviously, Barbie has been the topic of conversation now for six weeks. I mean, it's, yeah. it's insane opening weekend, the incredible following, the legs that it has had. And now it is going to end up being the number one box office film of the year, edging out Mario Brothers, the number one Warner Brothers. I'll be honest with you. I don't know which one is the bigger feat. Like, every year there's a number one box office movie. In the last 50 years, we've had 50 number one movies at the box office. How often does a major studio's all-time number one film switch up? What do you take away from this? Well, on one hand, I love the fact that this was a, a film that was in development for a long time. Of course, we knew there was going to be an Amy Schumer version of it. And Warner Brothers is a studio that hangs on to projects. You know, they have, they've had projects over the years that sometimes have taken 20 years to reach fruition. And what I love about this movie, John is you had someone like Margot Robbie, who, let's face it, she's a great actress starting out. I loved her in Wolf of Wall Street. She's incredible in I, Tonya. But lately, she's been getting hammered career-wise. She hasn't been in a hit. You know, she threw her weight behind this. Uh, she got people like Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig to come in and write a script, Greta Gerwig to direct, really got behind it. And this project was sort of willed into existence by a That's studio. That's a great way to put it. It really was willed into existence. It was existence. willed into it's existence. You had a studio that let them do this. You had a star that brought in collaborators that, that figured out a way to do something. If this was just some toy franchise movie, it could have been a disaster. But this to me, and now at the box office, represents how Hollywood at its best can work. Because you didn't have a lot of oversight with the executives I'm sure they're like once this train has left the station we we trust you you know whatever and and it showed how a studio a licensed company you know Mattel with with Barbie this how how crazily a a, a studio tentpole about a toy line that has been around for 50 years that has good talent behind it that are allowed to do what they do to me, this is a, a, a win and it shows the very best of Hollywood and what can actually happen because this movie actually has something to say. I've seen it twice now. And every time, well, every time, the time, both times I've said, the first time I saw it, I was very surprised at just how much there was to chew on in terms of what it meant. And like, this is interesting. I didn't, and then the second time I saw it and I'm like, this is, this is even more clever than I gave it credit for the first time. Yeah. And I saw what they were doing and I'm like, who would have thought? Like, I never would have thought. And yeah, they benefited from the Oppenheimer Barbie, the social media meme that I'm sure Warner Brothers marketing was like, thank God, you know, but but still, I love this. I love the fact that social media had a part in marketing this movie. I like the fact that Margot Robbie, it puts her way back on top of Hollywood and that Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig, who are basically known for indie cinema, are now two of the most, the hottest properties in Hollywood. Yeah, you mentioned- the Amy Schumer version, because it's really, there were three different iterations of a Barbie movie that they've yeah. been trying to get to. It started with the Amy Schumer one, which, and it's, they represent three different philosophies. And I think any one of them could have worked, right? Yes. The Amy Schumer one was going to be a complete counterintuitive one. One about, like, Amy Schumer is not your idea of a Barbie. And looking at it from that perspective, if Amy Schumer was Barbie. And I remember when they first talked about it, I thought, there's, there's an interesting movie to be made there. That then morphed into the Anne Hathaway right. one, right? Which was going to be more of a straightforward kind of Barbie, but in the real world, right? Kind of thing. It's like, you know what? That would have been 
thinner, but it also could have been like really entertaining. And I love Anne Hathaway. Oh, and, and I, I don't know why Anne Hathaway gets the hate she gets. She's awesome. Love I'll take her. Anne Hathaway all day, every day. And then you had this Margot Robbie version, which became more of an introspective, you know, existential deconstruction kind of approach. Like, so three different ideas, totally different and unique. I would have been interested in any of them, but this one just kind of came off in gangbusters and it captured a lot of people's imaginations and audiences kept coming back to go see it again and again. Yeah. So good for them. Congratulations to Barbie. And they get that re-release in September with extra footage, right? Oh yeah. They and they're, they're putting it out in so, IMAX September 22nd with extra footage. What that footage is, we still don't know, but it's just going to add to the box office. How story. high do you think this movie is going to get? I was telling Jonathan, I think it might hit 1.7. I was like, that's a stretch. Oh, I don't know. That, uh, 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 that's completely impossible. It's not going to make $400 million. I would like, like, Ray, do you know how numbers work? Yeah, it's, it made like 17 this weekend, which is great. I Yeah, I think I I think it can get to, I think it maybe can get to 1.4. It's at 1. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's at 1.3 something. I, can, I think it can get to 1.4 at this point. Again, we got Equalizer coming out this week, but not a lot in the next couple of weeks. So it's still going to have a bit of a runway. Yeah. All right, guys. With that down, let's move on to this, shall we? Speaking of Barbenheimer and the box office, about a week or so ago, we discussed the fact that Oppenheimer, despite the fact that it was going head-to-head with the number one film of the year, Barbie, and even opened on the exact same weekend, Oppenheimer managed to get into the top 10 all-time box office R-rated films. And at the time, we kind of speculated how high can it go, and I thought, I think I can see it getting up to number six. Yeah, we'll forget that. (laughs) Because today and tomorrow, Oppenheimer will climb into the number two spot. As we go over, just a reminder, not not including Oppenheimer. This is prior to Oppenheimer... This is when Oppenheimer just got the number 10 spot under Hangover Part 2, right? right? We had Logan at 614, Passion of the Christ at 622, Detective Chinatown 3 and 699, It, the first It movie at 701, Matrix Reloaded, and then you had the Deadpool films, right? Deadpool 1 at $781 million, Deadpool 2 at 786. Now, we knew it was never going to catch Joker, but I didn't think it would catch the Deadpool films. As of the weekend, it has made $770 million. By the end of today worldwide, it will cross Deadpool 2 and become the number two R-rated box office film of all time. Again, I want to remind everybody, this movie opened against, on the same weekend, the film that is going to be the number one box office film of the year. Which really makes us call into question some of the standard wisdom that we as film fans, including me, often assess it's like, oh, you're putting that movie within two weeks of this other big movie? That automatically means your movie's going to get flushed out. Now, granted, Barbie and Oppenheimer, two very different demographics that they're aiming for and going after. But even then, when you got two movies of completely polar opposite demographics, you get a lot of people going, oh, you can't open within one or two weeks of another big film. That, But there, there's also wisdom in saying, if an audience wants to see a movie they're going to go see a movie. And if there's another movie they want to see, they're going to go see that too. And I think this is just, number one, it's a huge feather in the cap for Christopher Nolan, like massive for him. 
uh, only beat out by Joker. If it wasn't for Joker, it would be the number one R-rated film of all time. It's getting into the $800 million range. It also, like Barbie, is showing incredible legs. I just think this is truly a monstrous money. I said 770. It's actually got to $777 million over the weekend. So there's another uh, tap on that. Uh, This is just incredible performance for Oppenheimer because I still remember going in that weekend. There were a lot of people who did not think a long, slow, talking period piece. (laughs) No one's going to go see it. Or was it? Was it Logan Paul? That thing walked out of it. There was a lot of talking in walked that. Walked out of All they did is talk in that movie. All right. <laughs> so, but I mean, uh, I mean, hey, it's all subjective. If that doesn't work for you, that doesn't work for you as a film fan. But that this thing is about to crawl over the $800 million mark, passes, passing Deadpool films. This is incredible what this has done. And now we're going to talk about this later, but probably the front runner for best picture of the year. We're going to discuss that in a bit. But Rob, we're looking at this, talking a little about a lot of box office numbers now, but Oppenheimer is now in the next 24 hours getting in, is passing Deadpool to become the number two R-rated film of all time. What do you think? I love it. I mean, here's a film, a historical, I mean, obviously this isn't even a, this is kind of a dry movie. It's people talking in rooms. Shot in IMAX looks incredible. The performances are amazing. You've got an A-list group of actors interacting with one another. It's, it's why I go to the movies. But the fact that the audience I mean, this is not just a byproduct of the whole Barbenheimer phenomenon. People actually really are affected by this movie. I think I think when you show people great movies that are made by great directors that star great actors, people will go. And I think this bodes well for the future. I think that there's lessons to be learned here. I mean, obviously, you have to have a filmmaker like Christopher Nolan who can make a movie like this. Yeah. And there aren't many people in the world that can. So it's not like they can suddenly go get a bunch of 20 directors to be like, okay, we want a movie just like Oppenheimer. Pick your favorite historical uh, subject matter and we'll do it. It's not going to work like that. But I do like the fact that this speaks a lot toward what audiences will go see, John. Like you talked about conventional wisdom. It's not just it's not just superhero IP or Star Wars IP or Harry, Harry Potter IP. Audiences will embrace startling visions of originality about historical epics they might not have known much about. So I think this speaks well to the audience and to Universal who made it. So good for them. See, I'm glad you brought that up because I I remember in the heat of going back just a, just a couple of years, the heat of the debate about, well, comic book movies are ruining cinema because they're eating up all the box office. And I, I've always kind of had this idea. It's like, again, people are going to go see movies they want to see. Just because a lot of people are going to see Guardians of the Galaxy 2 doesn't mean they can't go see a smaller drama if they want to go see that movie. Like the the comic book genre for a long time kept the movie business alive and thriving. And I think you get into a year now where like you got Barbie and, and Oppenheimer breaking all time box office records proves that, hey, are people still interested in comic book movies? Guardians of the Galaxy 3, Across the Spider-Verse, they suggest yes, they do. But- they want to see good movies, period. A movies that'll give them an experience. And if that's something like Barbie that makes you think and feel, or whether that's something like an Oppenheimer that gives you a totally different sensation of an experience, maybe a bit of dread, intrigue, all that kind of stuff. That's why movies are awesome. 
And that's why they're great. And it's it's good to see that we're going to have a year where the biggest movies are not comic book movies. No, and you know, Elizabeth, this weekend, Elizabeth and I, we watched The Prestige. We watched Brian De Palma's Blowout. And we watched Martin Scorsese's After Hours. All three movies that she hadn't seen on 4K discs. I was like, let's have a little f- festival. And she turned to me when it was over and she's like, wow, I really miss when... Movies had something to say and were were so compelling and well-directed. And I'm like, yeah, but we still live in a time where those movies are in theaters right now. Yep, they're still there and they're getting made. All right, guys, we still have a couple of other things to talk about. Like, uh, is Oppenheimer even eligible for the Oscars? Uh, That Dune's delay may help Oppenheimer. But before we get to those, we're going to take a second and thank one of the sponsors of today's episode of the John Campion Show podcast, our friends at Marine Lair and DraftKings. Guys, we want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's video, Marine Lair. All of us as guys are always looking for shirts that look good, but more importantly, are comfortable. Now, I want you to imagine the softest thing you've ever worn, and that's Marine Lair. Marine Lair is the go-to brand for great fitting and stylish closet staples. Based out of California, where we are, Marine Lair clothes are that perfect mix of laid-back style that also looks and feels premium. And these t-shirts stay soft no matter how many times you wash them. It's time to invest in a wardrobe that will actually last. For a limited time, our listeners and viewers get an exclusive 15% off discount with the code CAMPIA at marinelair.com. Like many of you guys, when I looked at Marine Lair's website, I could tell how good their clothes looked, but it wasn't until I got my hands on them and actually put them on that I knew just how unbelievably comfortable they are, which for me is the most important thing. And guys, how many times have you felt that you were in between sizes when buying clothes? What's cool about Marine Lair is that they have in between sizes. You finally no longer have to make that difficult choice between medium and large and extra large. I think we can all admit that the perfect tee is hard to find, but look no further than Marine Lair. For a limited time, get 15% off with the code CAMPIA at marinelair.com. That's CAMPIA for 15% off your entire order at marinelair.com. Saving your closet one shirt at a time. We want to thank a sponsor of this video, DraftKings. College football fans, are you ready for week one? DraftKings Sportsbook is hooking you up with a can't-miss offer to start the season strong. This week, new customers can bet just $5 in college football and score $200 in bonus bets instantly. Anything can happen in college football. Your team could go from unranked to dynasty mode in just a couple of years because change comes fast. The only thing that's a lock is the great offers from DraftKings Sportsbook. Life's more fun when you're in on the action. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use the code CAN. New customers can score $200 in bonus bets instantly when they bet just $5 on college football. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code CAMPIA. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-H-O-P-E-N-Y or text H-O-P-E-N-Y 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort, Kansas, 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. See dkng.co slash football for eligibility, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Bonus bets expire seven days after issuance. Eligibility and deposit restrictions apply. And thank you to our friends at Marine Lair and DraftKings for sponsoring this episode of the John Campus Show podcast. Okay, guys, with that down, let's get into this, shall we? We're going to talk a little bit more in a little while here about Oppenheimer's Oscar chances. But, you know, a while ago, the Oscars introduced a new set of standards and rules about 
diversity requirements for a film to even be considered eligible. And we've been seeing online some questions about whether Oppenheimer's even going to be eligible for the Oscars. And that is the topic of today's Mint Mobile hotline question of the day. Listen, guys, if you've got a topic or a question for the show and love to hear your voice on it, go ahead and call the hotline anytime, 24-7 at 951-268-4259. Every day we'll pick out one or two of those questions. And again, today is about... Is Oppenheimer even eligible for the Oscars? Check it out. Hi, John and crew. This is Jason Kaufman. I've been hearing, you know, a lot of people speculate that Oppenheimer will get all the Oscars, but I've been hearing Oppenheimer may not be eligible due to diversity requirements because they didn't have enough diverse cast on the screen. I'm wondering if there should be an exemption for historical accuracy. What do you guys think? All right, Jason, thanks a lot for calling that in. And, and I got to tell you, even though it's not talked a lot about, this is one of the most misunderstood um, concepts in movies. And, and people perpetuate this idea and this myth. So the thing that's kind of going around, you've probably seen it happening in some discussions, is that Oppenheimer's not even going to be eligible for the Oscars because guess what? Not a lot of diversity <laughs> on screen in Oppenheimer. Not a bunch there. Guess what? That time in America, there wasn't a bunch of diversity in anything uh, that was being done. So, you know, and, and there's been some suggestions going around that the Oscars had passed these new rules that unless you have diversity, you can't be eligible for the Oscars. And there is a nugget of truth in that, but it is one nugget amongst a quarry of stones. In other words... There's a lot more to it. I'm going to basically say this. The diversity rules, and we're going to look at them here in a second, that the Oscars have put into place are basically so lenient that you would pretty much have to deliberately try to not be eligible for the Oscars, not to pass these. Okay, let's look at this. The Oscars put out a set of standards, all right? Let's bring up that first one, Jonathan. And really, the basic rule says this, is that for your movie to be eligible for the Oscars, you must, when it comes to diversity and stuff, your movie has to meet two of the following four standards. We'll call them standard A regarding actors, standard B regarding crew, standard C regarding companies, and standard D regarding executives. You do not have to meet all of these. You only got to meet two. And even within each of the standards, there's many different ways for you to qualify. So if you get standard C and standard D, your film's eligible. You get standard A and standard C, you're eligible. Any of the two. And you can miss the other two. And again, within each of these standards, there's multiple ways to get it. Let's start off with standard A, the actors. This is the one that most people focus on and think it's the only thing and why some people wonder if... Uh, Oppenheimer's even going to be eligible. Okay, standard A, actors. This standard can be met in one of three ways. There's three different ways you can meet this standard. Number one, either one lead or significant supporting character uh, is from an underrepresented racial or ethnic group. Number two, at least 30% of the acting ensemble is from at least two under, underrepresented groups, women, LGBTQ community, disabled or deaf people, or people from an underrepresented racial or ethnic group. So basically anybody, if, as long as you get 30% of your cast, it doesn't even matter if they're leads or not, is anybody but straight white males, you're good. 
Uh, and then third, uh, storyline centers on an underrepresented group. Okay. So to get standard A, let's say five of your main characters, your two leads and say three significant supporting characters. If any one of them is gay, if any one of them is black, if any one of them is Latino, if any one of them is from Pakistan, if any one of those five, you got standard A. Even if none of your leads are, if 30% of your overall ensemble is either made up of women, deaf characters, uh, physically handicapped characters, ethnic minority characters, one out of every three, less than one out of every three, it says 30%, not 33, you're good, you're covered. So even just in the actor thing, it's not difficult to get the actor check mark. But again, you don't need to have standard A. You only got to get two out of the four, A, B, C, or D. So clearly, guess what? Oppenheimer, not going to get standard A. And not surprising considering the era and the subject matter of the movie. It's not going to get standard A. But that's not a problem. Because then there's standard B. Standard B talks about crew. I want you to really grasp how ridiculously easy it is for any movie to get this one. Films must meet any one of the following three criteria. You don't have to get all of them, just one of the following three. At least two creative leaders or department heads, including casting directors, cinematographers, composers, and more, must be from an underrepresented group. Okay. Okay. I want you to understand how many, they don't even just say department heads, leaders or department heads. You need to understand how many a major film, how many departments they have. It's a lot. There are a lot of leaders. I would say, I, I did some rough numbers in my head. I'd say any one of a major film, a movie that, that had a budget of like 40 million or more, is going to have at least 15 roles that kind of fall under this. Because it doesn't even just have to be departments. You got music, costuming, uh, camera. Like there's all these departments in a movie, but you don't even have to be one of the department's heads. You can be one of the leaders in that. I'd say minimum 15 to 20 people could qualify for that. And how many have to be from an underrepresented group? Two. Just two. And you got a 75% chance just that your costuming person is going to be a woman. And, and then you got one left. You would honestly have to try to make sure you have no minorities in your company at all in order not to get this. But by the way, that's only one. Check out the next two. Must be from an underrepresented group. Okay. Or number two, at least six crew or technical positions must be from an underrepresented group. Do you know how big a movie crew is? <laughs> Do you have any, sit through the credits on a movie. You got to have at least six crew or technical positions from an underrepresented group. Good luck not making, making this criteria. And then number three, or at least 30% of the crew must be from an underrepresented group. All that means is out of every 10 members of a crew, if you've got seven out of those 10 are straight white males, you're good because that means three aren't. But really it's those first two parts of that that makes standard B an automatic gimme. It's a, like that's, that, they're just giving that out like participation awards. You get standard B, no problem. Oppenheimer does qualify for standard B. So now it only needs one more standard. So let's look at standard C, which by the way is also an automatic gimme. This is regarding companies. 
you get the credit for Standard C if the film's production, distribution, or financing, not and, or any one of those three, if a film's production, distribution, or financing companies offers paid internships or apprenticeships and training opportunities for people from underrepresented groups. Guess what? Just about every every major production, distribution, and finance companies in the business has one of those. They don't all, but most of them do. So when you're making a movie, either your production company that's that's putting the movie together, the distribution company that's then taking the movie and putting it out to the world, or the financing company that puts up the money for the movie made, if any one of those three companies has an internship program for people from underrepresented groups, and almost all of them do, your movie gets the checkmark for standard C. Standards B and C are practically automatic gimmies, and all you need is the two, and you're done. But it's not. There's even more. If for some unimaginable reason, (laughs) like there's some mathematical (laughs) improbability, you don't get standard B and you don't get standard C, then there's still standard D executives. The film studio, this has nothing to do with the movie, but the film studio has multiple. That's the word. Multiple. That means anything more than one. The film studio must have multiple senior executives from underrepresented groups on its marketing, publicity, or distribution teams. Do you know how many vice presidents Paramount Studio has? It's a lot. Too many. They've got a lot of vice presidents. That's not to mention executive vice presidents, senior vice presidents, presidents. You know, what it's... They have a lot. (laughs) And all you got to say is you got more than one. That's it. And I think they all do. I think all of them have it. So it's pretty easy. Let's bring up the first chart again. Uh It's pretty easy to get standard A. It's not difficult to get standard A, the actor's one. But you're going to come across a movie like Oppenheimer that because of the context and the period that it's set in, it might be difficult to do that. But, But for most movies, it's pretty easy to get A. Not automatic, but pretty easy but it doesn't matter if you don't get it. You can make a movie called Barry McWhite in the world of Whitey Whites, and you can still easily qualify. <laughs> that's, that's the name of my memoir, by the way. And you can still easily qualify because B's an automatic, C's an automatic, and D is pretty much an automatic. You just got to get two out of the four. So the answer to your question, amongst all the discussions you see going around that, Oh man, I don't think Oppenheimer even qualifies for the Oscars this year. Yes, it does. Yeah, it does. And and Rob, I, I've said this before. I remember we we did a, a video about this when the Oscars first implemented this. And I remember said at the time, and I still stand by it. This is really a rule that is set against an extreme. You would literally have to be a movie that is intentionally trying to not make eligibility. And you could accidentally meet the eligibility requirements here. I don't know. But you see these. What do you think about this whole thing and the question about Oppenheimer? Well, look, I think you're absolutely right. I've, I've been on a lot of movie sets, uh, big movie sets, and they're a pretty diverse place 
anyway. I mean, production is different than say the executive suites, you know, and, 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 and production has a great representation of all of human humanity. You've got the, the white collar producers that are worried about money and time. Like I gotta step it up. And then you've got the blue collar, like the guys, the grip and electric departments. And then you've got the flamboyant departments of costume and makeup and hair and all that. So there's a pretty diverse group of people in production and that's what makes it fun. That's why I love working in production. And I, I, I like the fact that what I think this really says is there's a lot of people from underrepresented groups that don't even think that they can go into movie making as a career, mm, you know, yeah. cause like maybe their background doesn't like, doesn't l- let them dream like that. You have to be crazy to want to go into movies cause it's so hard anyway. So what I like about this is it shows that Hollywood has an open door. Like, Hey, you want to be one of the crazy people that makes movies or tries to make movies? You can come cause the more the merrier. You know, we're, we don't want to stop anybody from trying to achieve those dreams. And But I can tell you, they will grind you down, make you turn, <laughs> turn you into dust. And it is a long road, lonely and hard. But no, I, I think it's good that we have these. And um, like you pointed out, there's so many different ways to fulfill these requirements. And at the end of the day, I mean, I just I love seeing all different kinds of people come into the business that have different stories to tell that have different skill sets. It just, it's, it makes everybody stronger at the end of the day. Yeah. And, so, and, and the reason why I agree with these and why I say they're really just a, a protection against an extreme point of view is that I'm sorry, but if you are a movie studio that has say 24 executives and none of them are women, I'm sorry, but you you've got some prejudice built in because there's, I get it. One job. Okay. Went to the guy. That's fine. Second job went to the guy. Okay. That's fine. Third. Oh, okay. Fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth. At, at some point <laughs> it becomes questionable yeah. um, about that. And I think Are you doing this just, on purpose. <laughs> yeah. It might be a little bit on purpose at that point. But again, the, the whole thing about crews about like how many department heads are there in, in a major film and leaders within that department and guess what? I think a good percentage of them end up being women, people of minority. Yeah. I, I just, they set up, I think these are common sense rules, sit there to, to protect against an extreme situation, and they're very easy for any movie to get. So It's true. Anyway, with that down, guys, uh, let's lead into a topic now that is actually directly connected and really a consequence of that. Oppenheimer's Oscar chances. Now, a little while ago, somebody wrote into the show and asked, you know, who do I think is, is really the front-running movie of the year? And I said, although I haven't seen it yet, I think it's got to be Dune 2, right? The first movie, completely beloved. It won the most Academy Awards at the Oscars that year. I think a lot of people are really aiming for this one, looking for this one, and the very fact that this one is going to be a different kind of movie, really amping up. It's more of a war movie, this second one. Denis Villeneuve is really kind of the golden boy right now as far as directors in Hollywood go. And really, I said, I think Dune is going to have to be considered the frontrunner. I might change my mind after I see it, but for now, I think it's got to be considered the frontrunner. Well, Dune 2 has been delayed, despite what the president of IMAX said. You guys remember that? Yeah. Last week, the president of IMAX came out and said, Dune 2 ain't moving because <laughs> they can't have the window that we at IMAX can give them. They got this great window. They would have told us they ain't moving. Well, that comment didn't age well. No. Because they moved it Four months into 20, I believe it's March. I think it's March of 2020. Yeah. 
So they moved all the way into March. I'm bummed. I wanted to see it this year. But what that really does is it turns the Oscar race completely on its head. And I think it turns us on its head very much the advantage of Oppenheimer. Now, Grant, there are a couple of other movies that are still to come out. Most notably, Children of the Flower Moon, Napoleon. So you, you got a couple of big potential big hitters there. And maybe once we see Napoleon, maybe once we see Children of the Flower Moon, Killer, uh, Killers, of the Flower uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, sorry, uh, we'll go, oh, no, 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 this is the film. Yeah, that can happen. But I think as of right now, with the removal of Dune from the race, I think you got to say right now the odds on favorite has got to be Oppenheimer. I mean, it's got the advantage over Killers of the Flower Moon and Napoleon in the sense that we know what the movie is. We've seen it. We know what we're getting. We believe the other two are going to be great, but can they be this great? Rob, I think all of a sudden, the question of, is this the year that Christopher Nolan wins Best Director? A week ago, I was said, there's a chance, but I, I really think this one's going to be Denis Villeneuve's to take. All of a sudden, I don't think this is just the best chance Christopher Nolan's had. I think he's got to be considered the front runner right now because we've seen what he's done with this movie. What, if anything, do you think Dune's removal from this year does for Oppenheimer's Oscar chances? Does it do nothing? Does it increase? I, I don't know. How do you see this? Well, I mean, obviously, as far as technical awards go, and those are not to be, you know, uh, we talk about actor and picture and all that, but technical awards are important as well. Cinematography, Absolutely. sound, music. I think those Dune was, we saw the first Dune was a huge front runner. I think Dune 2 is a huge front runner. And that, that one's, I think, six Oscars. Six Oscars, yeah. So all of those, those are now off the table. So that opens up, because Christopher Nolan's movies technically are pretty incredible. So um, I could see those Oscar chances being elevated. Christopher Nolan himself, absolutely, as a director. Um, but you know, Martin Scorsese and Ridley Scott, and there's another movie we saw a clip from that really I wasn't paying much attention to that's still coming out at the end of the year, and, and people might... Color Purple, the musical. Oh, my God, yeah. Uh, yeah. Warner Brothers still has that. Uh, and we saw, I mean, Oprah Winfrey came out at CinemaCon and, and brought the gravitas, man. And, John, even Oprah Winfrey, when she walked out into that room, you felt it, man. That, Dude, whole, that was that was the opening of the convention. It, it was, was the very first thing that happened was Oprah coming out. Oprah coming out. I, I was like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> I think everybody, all the exhibitors like, oh, my God. But when they showed... We all wanted to look under our seats to see if we had anything. Yeah. The, the, uh, <laughs> um, but that movie, and I love the first film, but I was really surprised at how incredible that movie looks. And the director was there, and, and, and I think that um, that is not, in my mind, that's also, along with Napoleon, Color Purple, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, and Oppenheimer, that's a pretty strong end of the year. That's a killer's row right there. You know, and all those films look pretty great. I mean, obviously, the scene, we saw a nine-minute sequence, a battle sequence from uh, Napoleon. Napoleon that looks oh, incredible. So good. And the so trailer good. for Killers of the Flower Moon, I mean, and in terms of Robbie Robertson from the band, you know, he just passed away, but he did the soundtrack, you know, which has a lot of Native American influence because he grew up on a reservation. I, I mean, there's a lot of potential, I think. And and what's even better is we're, we have a lot of great movies this year to still look forward to. Yeah. My bum dunes left. Yeah. But I bet they're going to take every ounce of time they've got to make it even better. I'm going to throw in a dark horse on this. In the race, I, I agree. Like right now we're looking at Oppenheimer. 
Um, I, I, you're, I think you're 100% right to bring up Color Purple, Killers of the Flower Moon, Napoleon. I'm going to throw in one dark horse here. Wonka. Yeah. I, I was interested in Wonka before CinemaCon. When they showed us the presentation at CinemaCon, though, I was like, this, this doesn't just look interesting. This looks really good. From the director of Paddington. From the director of Paddington and Paddington 2, right? Which... If you listen to Nicolas Cage, Paddington 2, one of the greatest films of all time. There's a, a little quote from his Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent movie. But it's it's it truly looks spectacular. And and with Paul King directing it, I, I really think this has a little bit of a dark horse outside shot. By the way, speaking of movies that they showed us at CinemaCon that I was paying no attention to, and then I saw the presentation, I'm like, wow, when does Wicked come out? Oh, I can't remember. Is Wicked this year or is it 2024? I think it's 2024. Okay, because okay, so for Dude. 2024, yeah. I had no interest in Wicked. And then they showed us that big presentation on it, and I'm like, fuck me. I want to see Wicked. Yeah. This looks awesome. Me too. Uh, all right, guys. What do you think about that? Do you think Dune getting out of the race means it's wide open for Oppenheimer now? Do you think, hey, wait a minute, we're 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 getting ahead of ourselves? Killers of the Flower Moon, Napoleon, those things could lap it. Who knows? Whatever you guys think, let us know in your comments. All right, guys. With that all down, we're now going to move over and start taking questions from our YouTube channel members. But before we do, we're going to take another quick second here and thank another sponsor of today's episode of the John Campbell Show podcast. My mobile service provider, and they 100% should be yours, Mint Mobile. Guys, we want to take a second to thank a sponsor of today's video, Mint Mobile. Signing your life away to a big wireless provider is kind of like being trapped on a roller coaster from hell. Sure, it looks like fun at first. They probably even threw in a free phone. But now you can't get off. Month after month of insane bills and unexpected thrills. Like overages and surprise fees. If that sounds like your current big wireless plan, it's time to get off the ride with Mint Mobile. For a limited time, wireless plans for Mint Mobile are just $15 a month. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for just 15 bucks a month. You guys know before I came to Mint Mobile, I was paying triple what I am paying now on the standard big wireless plan, and I will never go back. All plans come with unlimited talk, text, and high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. To get your new unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped right to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com campia. That's mintmobile.com dot com slash campia cut your wireless bill to just 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash campia and thank you to our friends at mint mobile for sponsoring this episode of the john campia show podcast all right guys with that down let's get over to our youtube channel members questions jonathan what do we got up here first uh imperial executioner well, that sounds <laughs> dark hey crew saw strays yesterday for four dollar ticket day Loved it. My theater was sold out. Yay. Really? Yeah. Yeah. You know, those cinema days do really well for, for theaters. That's awesome. Um, shout out to all the hardworking theater employees and the 50 plus people who are in line to buy concessions supporting the theater. I, I got to tell you, Rob, I don't think you were here for us to discuss it, but I mean, I lament like hard when like a couple of, in, in an era that everybody's complaining, where are the comedies and where are the original films? This year, we had two comedies, very, very different from each other, but kind of similar in a way. Joyride, which is the best comedy I've seen in years, and Strays, which I thought looked good. I was very surprised how hard I laughed. Not a movie that's for everybody. If you're not into the more, you know, 
uh, I'm not, not dark humor, but into the more dirty humor, it, it won't be for you. That's totally fine. But if you're like me and you love it, <laughs> I was laughing my ass off in that movie. And both those movies horribly flopped. I like, yeah. I love hearing more people are going to go see that. Bottoms. You have to see Bottoms and it opens wider this weekend. It's got, it's, They've had a poster for that up at our local AMC theater for like four months. Yeah. <laughs> it's also filthy and raunchy and hilarious. All right. And, uh, it, and it opens wide this weekend. You got, you'll love it. All right. So I got Equalizer 3 and Bottoms I got to see yeah. this weekend. All right. What's next? All right. Kane Carnage X writes, hey, guys, hope everyone had the best weekend. Over the weekend, the first reactions came out for the live action One Piece, and it's overwhelmingly positive, calling it both faithful and fresh to the source material. This is so awesome to hear since it's easily one of the hardest stories to adapt in live action. My question, though, is One Piece the biggest IP Netflix has ever tried to adapt? Um, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I biggest don't in, in terms I mean, of I'm, what? I'm not a, like, and I say that as no insult intended because I'm, I'm not a One Piece guy. Not that anybody else shouldn't be, but I don't care about One Piece. So it's really difficult for me to say. I mean, Netflix has adapted some pretty big things. I mean, hell, they just did... You know, Game of Thrones, uh, they just did Last of Us, they just did, I mean, so uh, considering there's a lot of people in the general audience that don't care about it, I'm going to say it's probably not the biggest thing they've adapted, but even though it's not for me, it is certainly large, it's certainly big, and it's certainly a responsibility, so I hope for all the people who are big fans, I hope it does turn out really, really good and people enjoy it. All right, what's next? Um, uh, Aaron, I think, Epstein, uh, hey, crew, just wanted to put this out there. Iron Man 1 made less money than Man of Steel, but for some reason, we all consider Man of Steel an underperformer. And it was. It 100% was. Iron Man didn't come out when superhero movies were dominating the box office. All right? Man of Steel, which is my beloved, most underrated comic book film in the history of cinema. Mm -hmm. Henry, ladies and gentlemen. Henry. Henry, the greatest Superman of all time right here. <laughs> Um, despite that, movies like that first Iron Man and stuff like that, they changed the environment. They changed the context. Those movies made comic book movies the number one biggest box office draws in the world. And as a major, major fan, dare I say the world's biggest fan of Man of Steel, it does not change the fact that Man of Steel did not come out in the same context that Iron Man did. It came out in a context that was much bigger and much better. As a matter of fact, another Iron Man movie had just come out before Man of Steel and it made over a billion dollars. It's that context that Man of Steel came out. It's not, let's not pretend like it's, it's all, all other things being equal. It's not. Say, well, Iron Man was the first MCU movie and Man of Steel, yeah, but Man of Steel to the most eyes in the average movie going world, it's just another comic book movie. And it did underperform. It's Superman. Superman is 50 times bigger, the, the character. Maybe not today, but at the time, 50 times bigger character, more famous, more loved, all that kind of stuff than Iron Man was. Everybody thinks Iron Man was the big comic book heroes. Yeah, we think that today. But before that Robert Downey Jr. movie, he was perceived by many people, myself included at the time, I admit it, as a poor man's secondhand Batman. Rich dude with no powers who uses his money to build toys and, and fights crime. So we can't pretend like it's an apples to apples comparison. It's not. Man of Steel had way more advantages going for it. It was now an environment where superhero movies were making all the money. People were going to the theaters and droves to see them. And it was the biggest IP in, 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 
in superheroes. So, yeah, Iron Man was a big surprise breakout. Man of Steel, in its context, was a disappointment. It just, I don't know, Rob, how would you address that? Well, also, Man of Steel costs a lot more. Probably about $75 million more than mm. Iron Man did. So there was that going. And it's also expectation. You know, the expectation the studio had was not in the 600 millions. They wanted an eight to 800 million to a billion dollar movie. And to be fair, I thought they kind of had it. You and I are both huge lovers of that film. Love that film. I, I think it's a great Superman movie. I think it's a great science fiction movie. I think Henry Cavill was perfectly cast. I love the rest of the cast. I mean, come on, Russell Crowe is Jarrell. Yeah. Kevin, I, and I love Kevin Costner as Paul Kent. Love that relationship. Oh, he was great. With the young clerk. But, you know, I mean, I, I, and look, Iron Man was something, they didn't know if it was going to work. They didn't know. And and Iron Man, very different kind of a movie. Yeah. You know, I think Iron Man was really beautifully done, but but it was more, Iron Man was definitely engineered more for the masses, whereas Man of Steel was more of Zack Snyder's vision, his operatic Alex Ross painted verse skies on fire kind of thing, which I loved. It was just a different, they were different. Let me ask this question for everybody in the room. Mm -hmm. Okay. Going to play a hypothetical. Let's say... Uh, one or two other movies kind of were those breaking ground, creating that. And then let's say that first Iron Man movie came out the same year that Man of Steel came out. Does anybody in this room doubt that that first Iron Man movie would have been a billion dollar film? If it came out in the context, in the environment where comic book movies were now the big thing, does anybody in this room not think that first Iron Man movie would have made a billion dollars? Oh, no. I have no doubt it would have made a billion dollars. It would, because it's, you know what, I it's wildly entertaining. Yeah. Yeah, it, was, it just kind of broke everything. All right, what's next? Uh, Ariel writes, hey, John and, uh, and the crew, uh, have you seen this, uh, still a Michael J. Fox documentary on Apple? Plus, it's uh, really good. I highly recommend it. I have not, and I really want to see it. It's of really course, good. Michael J. Fox, good Canadian kid. I, I, I definitely, and a, somebody who grew up watching his Alex P. Keaton, you know, as a child watching that. And, and so I really do want to see it. I've heard nothing but great things about it. Absolutely want to see it, but I haven't had a chance to watch it yet. Have any of you guys had a chance to watch it? Yeah, yeah. Did you I did. Like it's really it? moving, and it's just a great documentary. And you, you'll love Michael J. Fox even more. All right, what's next? Red One Real Talk writes: I'm late to the party, but I finally gave Andor a chance, and I'm just stunned. They uh, really gave Star Wars the HBO treatment, and it just confounds me that no part of what made this so great was injected into other recent Star Wars projects. And you know what I think. When there's new leadership at Lucasfilm, which I believe is, again, it's, I've been saying for a while, it's going to be before the end of this year. I think they're going to start taking a hard look at that. Um, and or, I mean, it's funny you put that, because that's the first thing I said after I watched the first couple of uh, episodes. It's like, this is Star Wars if HBO made a Star Wars show. And it was, I think it shocked a lot of people that, wait a minute, Star Wars can be this good? Like, to this day, I still think Andor... All due respect to some other Star Wars stuff that I like, but I think Andor is the best thing Star Wars has ever put out outside of the original trilogy. Uh, I mean, I, I love The Force Awakens. I love Rogue One, which is obviously very connected to Andor. There's a couple of things I really, really like, but I just think Andor passed all of it. I think it's just a superior, superior kind of stuff. What do you think? I No, I totally agree with you. And I think what's really interesting and. 25 years, I can see people watching Andor, Rogue One, and then A New Hope, you know, as part of this. It's because nowadays we know the difference. But in the future, when people are just exploring Star Wars, 
decades from now, I think they're going to see that. And if, if you watch, if you were to watch Andor, Rogue One, Star Wars, and Empire Strikes Back, you're going to get a really great idea of where and why Star Wars became what it became. 100%. I love the way you set that up. Yeah, I love that. All right, what's next? Uh, Cinema writes, what's your favorite movie from the year you were born? I was born in 96, so mine is Independence Day. I don't know what year movies came out. <laughs> I have no date knowledge, so... 1972. I don't know what movies came out in 1972, so I couldn't tell you. Do you know off the top well, of your head? 19, well, The Godfather. The Godfather that came out in 1972. Oh, well, yeah. then that's automatic. Godfather. <laughs> it's, it's probably the greatest film of all time. There I mean, you go. So, yeah, that, that makes it simple. Godfather, then. I have no idea. And one no best Scott, picture. I'm no Scott Mance. I, I cannot uh, pull those movie dates out of my... Uh, out of my ass, so I just don't know. All right, what's next? Uh, we got Jay Superboy writes, just wondering if you guys ever get a look at the interview uh, with a vampire AMC Plus series, Grey Worm plays uh, Louis. You know what? No, I, I, was, I was mildly interested in it. Mildly, but mildly interested in it. Um, but I don't have AMC. At least I don't think I have AMC. I don't think I have the network. So I never did what, but in its defense, I've heard good things about it. Yeah. People say it's pretty, have you had a chance to check any of it? Out? I watched a little, I, you know, when I started watching it, I kind of fell away from it after three episodes because it, they changed the time period. <laughs> and oh. I, I love the book so much and they brought it forward like a hundred years. And, Is it and, still like the same story, but just said in a different context, or is it supposed to be it, later? It's, it, it's later. It's like a hundred okay. years later. So it still imagines the events of the book did happen. Yeah. But now this is a hundred years later. Okay. Yeah. Well, no, the, the uh, book, the, the events of the books are happening later. Oh, so they just changed the they whole time period. They changed the whole time period. That's interesting. And it's hard for me to wrap my head around because, you know, I was a big, I read Interview with the Vampire, I read Vampire Lestat, I read Queen of the Dam. I mean, I've read all the, the Interview with the Vampire books. So it's weird. And I love the movie. The Tom oh, yeah. Cruise, the Brad Pitt movie. I love that movie, so it's a little hard to get used to. But they, somebody who hadn't read the books, do you think? Do you think? I it think you know what? What I saw was good. The actors are good. I mean, it's really beautifully made. But then they also upped the 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 Chris, Kirsten Dunst character. Uh, she plays a younger girl in the movies. They uh, they upped the age of that character, mm. which kind of defeats the purpose of having a young girl getting turned into a vampire is going to be locked into that age forever. Right. So, and I understand why they did it, but it's, you're kind of getting away from what Anne Rice was doing. Right. Got a little bit of that in Eternals too, by the way. All right. What's next? Uh, we've got uh, Rigo, uh, Rigo said, uh, I was today years old when I found out that AMC from the kit, from the Kidman ad was a real theater. Yes. I thought it was all green screen. And it's not far from here, right? Like it's the, um, it's not the one of Ventura County. Uh, I, I remember I saw, I read which one it was, and it's actually not far from where we live. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's absolutely 100% a real AMC theater that they did that at. An empty AMC movie theater, <laughs> yeah. by the way. All right, what's next? All right, Alan writes, Happy Monday, uh, Campia crew. Ray, I saw TMNT yesterday. It was great. Also, my friend and I celebrated a big New Yorker from Pizza Hut with a big New Yorker from Pizza Hut. Thanks for the recommendations. That is Ray right there. I, they became Ray. Where's my day. invite? This weekend, I actually thought about seeing uh, Mutant Ninja Turtles one more time. I wanted to see it again, but I just... You know what? I think I want to see it one more time on the it's big It's just screen. because it's such a... It's, I, the I, movie makes me happy. It's I, short. It's very short. But as somebody who had my doubts about the movie, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, what, what do you think about the 
what it's made so far? Is it good for? No, for, it's not no, no, right. It's bad because it's, it's like one forty million, one hundred forty million. Yeah. No, uh, it's seventy five million budget. Yeah, it's not good. Be, you know what? I'll say this too. I was flipping, uh, going around my uh, my streamers, and I came across that first live action Michael Bay produced one. I still prefer that one. I over, like that movie. I really, you know what? I was movie. shocked. I thought Michael Bay's going to run another thing into the ground, but. That first one, and, and he did. The second one was he bad. Did. The second Afterwards. one that they did with Stephen Amell yeah. was bad, and that wasn't Stephen Amell's Was that Amell's Michael fault. Bay, too? He produced, yes. it was Platinum Dunes Company was the production company behind it. But that first one, though, was yeah. surprisingly fun. What happens to Michael Bay after a first movie? Transformers well, 1 was good. Yeah, but Turtles he didn't one direct, he didn't direct these oh, teams. He, he, was, he was just like one of the executive producers right. on it, but yeah. All right. All right, we got time for two more. What's next? All right, King Daddy Go writes, hey, everybody. Uh, hope everyone is doing great today. Have you all checked out season two of Winning Time? I really do love this show, and I would love to see a Shaq and Kobe Winning Time style in the future. Thanks, guys. As always, bring on Filthy. I, I have only not seen yesterday's episode because that's a show I watch with Anne. Anne is currently in England. She was at the big AEW thing last night with Nigel and, and uh, Corey. So... uh I didn't have a chance to watch it, but but I've had people writing me telling me Nigel did an awesome job doing yes. commentary on the event. Uh, so congrats to Nigel. But winning time, John. This but last episode. I'll tell you what, the last one I saw was last week, the Larry Bird episode. <laughs> oh, my God. Because it was so funny. I'm watching it, and he walked in there. And he's, uh, I said, by the way, that's actually 100% true. And as soon as I said that, it brought up the tech. Boom. Yes, he actually wore boots and jeans. And he put up 60. <laughs> it's like, like you got to say, Larry Bird is my all-time favorite basketball player. And some of my favorite YouTube videos are the ones where all these NBA legends just tell stories about Larry Bird. Charles Barkley and Magic Johnson tell the best ones. But Charles <laughs> Barkley goes... That fool came up to my face and said, hey, Charles, next time I get the ball, I'm going to dribble three times. I'm going to go right there, and I'm going to hit a three. He told me what he's going to do, and he did it because <laughs> I knew he was doing it. I tried to guard him because you just can't stop him. Can't stop Larry Bird. But that, I didn't know the thing about his dad. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, I, that I didn't was know sure. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had no idea about that. And so I cannot wait to watch last night's episode. The cliffhanger to last night. Oh, I am. Wow. And I'll tell you what else. Um I always freeze on the actor's name. Won the Academy Award for the pianist. Uh, uh, Adrian Brody. Adrian, Adrian Brody. Brody kills it as Pat Riley. But again, uh, and again, I'm freezing on the actor's name. Who plays... Uh, uh, oh, Larry. No. No, no. Uh, uh, what's the actor's name again? I want to say... Uh, he plays the general, kind of the general manager of the team. He plays West. Uh, oh, uh, Joe, Jerry, uh, he plays Jerry West. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Will Ferrell's oh, former best friend. Oh no, not Jerry no, West. No, 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 uh, no. Jason Pat. Jason Pat. Not no, Jason Patrick. No, no, it's Jason. It's it's uh, from Terminator. Yeah, yeah. Jason. Um, uh, and he's in Oppenheimer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but him as Jerry West. Yeah. Is my favorite character on television. <laughs> I want to hang out with that Jerry West. That Jerry West, and I know there have been a lot of people saying, oh, that's not what Jerry, I don't care. Jerry West in this show played by Jason. Jason Clark. Yeah, Jason, Jason Clark. Clark. Thank you. Played by Jason Clark is probably my number one favorite character on TV. <laughs> Whenever Jerry West is on screen, I love this show. I love it anyway. Yeah, but. and the guy who plays Magic, he's more growing on 
growing on me as he actually starting to look like Magic Johnson to me. Oh yeah, like I mean, for for real. There's some this this it's entertaining. This this show. There's so much drama that I've never known about or never even heard of. But when you're watching TV, I know a lot of it's dramatized, but some of it has to be what went on in the back. Some of it amazed. is. Yeah, yeah, some of it is. But I, I would say this. I've been hearing a lot of people say they want to see a Kobe Shaq. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. No. Then that's just for Laker fans. Yeah. But you got to understand, you have to look at the history of it. Magic and Larry saved the NBA. Yep. Magic versus Larry literally made the NBA what it is today. Um, it, it was it was like, and the Showtime starts, the first episode really lays it out well that the state of the NBA was not what the NBA was today. And it was when Magic and Larry came into the league and created that thing. And that's something that LeBron James has never had his Magic or Larry. <laughs> he uh, had his uh, presentation. Right? Uh, <laughs> Kobe never had his magic or Larry polar opposite. Like a lot of the greats that have come since Jordan never had his magic or Larry, right? <laughs> yeah. Magic and Larry, they, they made the NBA. And some of my favorite stuff to see in interviews now is when magic and Larry do interviews together. Now, like magic will just tell stories about how Larry would kick my ass. And Larry was like, that guy was inhuman talking about magic <laughs> and just like hearing them talk about each other and seeing them do stuff together. Now, it's hilarious as they're old men, but man, their rivalry. It made professional sports. Yeah. And to be honest with you, no one's going to care about a Shaq Kobe thing because then it's just a story about the Lakers. Uh, Even though this is called winning, uh, winning time, the dynasty of the Lakers, it really is about how the NBA got saved. Right, right. And imagine how many teams we would have would have titles if Magic and Larry weren't there. Larry, Larry stopped Jordan from winning titles, like when he was younger, you know yeah, what I early, mean? Early, 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 yeah, early. Yeah. But I mean, just imagine all the teams that are won titles if Magic and Larry were. No, I mean, they dominated yeah, a they generation dominate of basketball, of yeah. right? And they redefined the game. I mean, it was, ah, I love this show so much. <laughs> all right, guys, that'll do it for today's installment of the John Campy Show podcast. Thank you so much for being here, making the show part of your day. Big special thank you to all of our YouTube channel members for sending in topics because number one, by being YouTube channel members, you guys support what we do here, but also for giving us fun things to talk about. I want to thank the people in the room, of course, Ray Aura, yeah, yeah. Jonathan Voico, See ya. writer, director, producer, YouTuber extraordinaire, Robert Meyer Burnett, and most importantly, thank you to you guys for being here. My name's John Campia, and until next time, my friends, Bye-bye. <laughs> Robbenheimer. Oh, Do you see a film by Chris? The explosion coming out of the toilet. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs>